Good morning, everybody. Let's go. Here we go, day three. Come on in. If you come up front, you'll get a handout. There are the handouts for the uh, Surgeon General's report are on the chairs up here, so you don't want to sit in the back. Here come a couple more folks. Here's Neil. Come on in, everybody. Let's begin day three, please. Good morning. Welcome back. Um, it's good to see everybody on the third and final day of the conference. It, it's a big day. We've got a lot of uh, good information and, and good sessions for you. So I want to say thank you for being here. And uh, I want to say a special thank you to our breakfast sponsor, the Rose House, Marcy Chambers and the Rose House in Colorado. Can we say thank you to Marcy? And also, Awakenings Recovery has done a wonderful job of providing uh, uh, nourishment for us at the conference, and they're, they're sponsoring lunch again today, so thank you, Awakenings. So our sessions th this morning and this afternoon are, are very substantive and, um, and educational, and, I, and I'm glad that folks uh, are attending. Um, beginning with Dr. Johnson this morning, followed by a really important session uh, chaired by, by Peter Polanka on the public system-private system divide and what that has historically looked like and maybe what it should uh, start looking like as we really focus on providing care for most people in this country. And that's something that hasn't always been a discussion here at NAATP, and I'm glad, very glad that it is, and I'm glad our conference chair, Peter Polanka, has brought that, brought that to us. So those are two big sessions this morning. After lunch, um, we will gather in workshops again, three sets of workshops, and those are all very, um, very good workshops, and you'll see them in your program, followed by what we are calling leadership roundtables. We started this last year, these leadership roundtables. I know that everybody starts thinking about going home and, and getting back to your day jobs at this time in the conference, but I really, really want to encourage you to stick around for the leadership roundtables. They're listed, there are four of them, and they're an opportunity to participate in a level that we don't usually get to participate. It's not a talking heads session. Uh, it is a session where you sit at the table with your colleague leaders, some of the best and brightest minds in, in this work, and talk about next steps, and those next steps are communicated to me and to the other NAATP leadership um, so that we can act on them. So these are important sessions, and, and, and um, our experience last year was that they were well attended and folks found them very valuable, so please uh, stick around for that. And um, the membership meeting, the annual meeting of the NAATP membership, that's you, uh, happens at lunchtime today. So our board chair, Carl Kester, will officially, according to NAATP bylaws, open the annual membership meeting um, and advise you of the activity uh, of the association and conduct association business. You know, we're not just a conference organization. NAATP is a membership association. We are a professional society of people who do this work. We are you. You are we. We are us, right? It's not um, what is NAATP doing. I'm a member, and I'd like to know what NAATP is doing. You are NAATP. 
to the extent that you want to be, and to the extent that you become involved in the process. So uh, everyone is invited to the membership luncheon. It's included in your registration cost. The food will be good. The food's been great here, by the way. Uh, um, great, right? Great hotel food. Um, thanks, Omni. Um, and so, um, you know, please come, and we'll talk to you about the newly elected board members. We'll talk to you about the trans, which whom for whom you voted. Thank you. Uh, we'll talk to you about the new officers and how that process works. And we'll thank some people who are who are leaving the process after having served uh, very distinguished periods of time on the board. So, so please come to the governor's ballroom at lunchtime. You know how to get there by now. Walk all the way over or, or, or take the shuttles from the front. And then the last thing on there that you'll notice is popcorn and Twizzlers, um, by which I mean uh, Leonard Bouchel's Real Recovery film closing. So please stick around for the film. It's really uh, a wonderful film. It it's going to happen in the forum, the workshop session at the end of the hall. And um, it'll be a nice way to close the session, so stick around for, for that. And I'm told there will be popcorn and Twizzlers, if that's an enticement. Before I introduce Dr. Johnson, I wanted to sort of follow up on some theme that has developed and really came to fruition last night at the awards dinner. Um, and it's our history. You know, our history matters. And our history is impressive and honorable. And our leadership is aging out in many ways. And it's imperative that we not lose our connection with our past and our, and our history. Um, as our leaders reach the place where it is time for them to move on to other things, it's critically important that we have new blood and new ideas and new energy. But it is also critically important that that population understand where we came from. Because if we don't understand where we came from, we don't know how to get where we're going. Public policy that is formed in the absence of historical knowledge is dangerous public policy. We have done a lot of things right before, and we might want to do them again. We have done some things wrong before, and we want to know that. And so it's really important that we understand that history. And Doug Tiemann uh, from Karen yesterday asked how many people had read Slaying the Dragon. Now, a lot of hands went up, um, really read Slaying the Dragon, which is a pretty intense history of addiction and, and its treatment in America is, is no small task. It's not something you sit down and do in one, in one sitting, but it is a, an amazing piece of literature and an amazing uh, social commentary on, on this country's experience with and, and response to addiction. William White is the author. Many of you, most of us know William White. He is perhaps, probably without question, the most serious and important chronicler of our, of our work. If you don't follow William White's work, I would recommend that you do. Um, if you Google Bill White, William White, you will find his blog. He recently blogged on the NAATP outcome study, had an interesting take on, on one of the statistics, not one that I necessarily would have said, Bill, right about that. But there you go. You know, he, he's, a, he's an important supporter and critic of our work. And he has certainly moved this field forward in terms of understanding, and the world forward in terms of understanding this is not an acute disease, this is a chronic disease, and that to the extent we still see it as acute, we, we have to continue to work beyond that. Um, 
Bill has even suggested we stop calling our alumni departments alumni departments because you don't graduate from addiction, you enter a life of recovery. And so, you know, I want to commend this book to you and, um, and suggest that you become familiar, especially if you're newer uh, uh, to the field. Last night, we honored our traditions, the traditions that are talked about in, in Slaying the Dragon and some of the founders of our work and some of the most important people in our, in our work. And it was moving. It was, it was, you know, we talk about a lot of things when we go through these educational conferences and sometimes something happens and you, and you recall, well, this is why we do this work. And, and the way we get ourselves to that place sometimes is to remember um, our leaders and honor them and then honor the people who are following in that path. So we give the Jasper G. Chen CMD Volunteer Leadership Award every year, two of them. Uh, the Nelson J. Bradley Career Achievement Award, the Michael Q. Ford Journalism Award, and the James West Quality Improvement Award. They were powerful. Ed Deal's mother, Ed Deal, the president of Seabrook House, Ed Deal's mother passed away after a long, wonderful life um, last year. And, uh, and um, she received the uh, um, Nelson J. Bradley MD Career Achievement Award, and Ed received it for her um, last night. And um, it was pretty special, because what Ed's able to do is recall the beginnings of the work that that his father and his mother, uh, Peg Deal, did. And the close connection that has with our understanding of addiction in the early days, you can draw a line from what these people did to the writing of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and it becomes a pretty profound experience. It's extraordinary to, to feel it. And it's extraordinary to really understand how deeply they cared and how deeply they understood that their, their mission was healing, you know? We talked about healing at the beginning of the conference. Their mission was not to build a profitable center and turn it around and sell it. That's not why they got into this work. And so it was pretty special. What I want you to do, if you would, um, as you go back home, is think about people like this. Think about people who, um, who warrant uh, recognition for these kinds of awards and nominate them. The nomination period for the 2017 awards will open soon, and, and those awards are, you can present your, your candidates on the website um, at um, NAATP.org awards and recognition. So read about them and, um, and send in your nominations so that we can continue this tradition of recognizing people who do wonderful work. Speaking of people who don't do wonderful work and, and, and important literature, the United States Surgeon General issued a remarkable piece of work uh, recently that does something that has never been done in this country by a Surgeon General, and that is address in a comprehensive and thoughtful and provocative and accurate way um, the condition and treatment of addiction in the United States. Uh, this handout is uh, little pieces of it, and, and um, the, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration provided this for us. There's much more on the website, and the report is, is, is really quite extraordinary. 
Um, we invited the Surgeon General to be with us, but he's no longer the Surgeon General, you may have heard. And so um, we're lucky, though, uh, uh, to have the director for the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment at SAMHSA, Dr. Kim Johnson, with us. Dr. Johnson is a highly intelligent researcher with also extraordinary practical knowledge and clinical experience in this work. She's a great combination of scholarship and practicality. She understands addiction and treatment at a very deep level, and we are very fortunate to have her with us this morning to walk us through Facing Addiction in America, the Surgeon General's report on alcohol, drugs, and health. Dr. Johnson, we're ready for you. Please give her a round of applause. Good morning. Let's see. How do I get to my slides? Oh, there we go. <clears throat> so thanks for having me this morning. I am um, one of these years. I'm going to come and um, I'm going to come in enough time to bring my golf clubs and play golf with you guys. I, as I, <laughs> yeah, as I was driving, well, I got in late last night um, and we were driving through the dark and I was saying, where are we going? And then I thought, oh, it's the NATIP guys. We're going to a golf resort. And of course, I don't have any time <laughs> to play. So I, I will just uh, do my presentation and run and I'm sorry about that. So we, um, I'm going to talk about the Surgeon General's report, and in a couple places I'm going to talk about what we're doing at um, SAMHSA to um, actualize the, re the things in the report. You do have these uh, handouts. If you want to order some to give to people if you're speaking somewhere or if you um, want to give them to uh, your staff or, I don't know, patients, then um, you can go on the SAMHSA website and you can order some of these. Um, or you can send me an email, email if you want, and I'll send you a whole ream of them. Um, the report is also available online, and we have a nice executive summary that makes a good handout, too. So I'm not going to specifically. The report has seven chapters, and I'm going to go through each one very briefly so you get the highlights. The first chapter is the overview, and the other thing you'll see is who was involved in this, and they're all the, um, they're all the sort of amazing people um, that are doing work in the particular areas they're doing. So Tom McClellan was actually the, um, the um, scientific editor for the, for the whole document, and he, he was the primary author of the first chapter. Um, so, so the first chapter is the rationale for the report, and the rationale is something that you all know, drug and alcohol misuse and um, drug and alcohol disorders are public health challenges that affect millions and place enormous burdens on society. And we have a serious substance misuse problem. Um, and most Americans know someone with a substance use disorder, and many um, have lost a family or friend. Um, and we have historically, and still today, it, and it's sort of surprising to me that still today, we um, continue to treat this disease as a moral failing and not as a chronic disease, even though we've been talking about it as a chronic disease for. It's pretty close to 100 years now. <laughs> so in 
So it's sort of astounding that that's still, we're still fighting that perception, um, which is really why the, surgeon, the last Surgeon General wanted to do this report, was to have a Surgeon General's report that documented that this is a health condition. Um, and that, um, I mean, I think he really felt that this could be a landmark report in the same way that the original tobacco report was. One of the things it did, um, particularly around language, in, in order to um, ensure that we use consistent language so that we did talk about this as a, a disease or condition is, um, and we had fights about this. You wouldn't believe, as we were writing this report, the arguments about the language, but this is where everyone landed, um, is, these, is these three words, um, substance use, substance misuse, and substance use disorder. And I think, um, actually, in the... Uh, they also landed on addiction as a serious substance use disorder. So it was kind of interesting, the debates we had about language. Um, but this is, the substance use disorder is the language in the DSM, the DSM-5, and so that's where we landed with that. Um, but it was interesting, the debates we had on that. So the scope of the problem, over 66 million people report binge drinking. Over 47 million people had used an illicit or non an illicit substance or a non-prescribed drug, and almost 20 million people met the criteria for a substance use disorder. That number is actually going down a little bit, so that might be surprising to you, but the um, but the number of people in the country with a substance use disorder is going down, and that's because we're actually doing a pretty good job reducing alcohol use disorders. Um, adolescent alcohol use has been about cut in half in the past 10 or 12 years, and so adolescent um, alcohol use disorders is also quite, has decreased quite a bit, and young adult alcohol use disorders has decreased quite a bit. So we have, um, so I guess I, that's not on my slide about a reason for hope and optimism, but it is a good place to talk about that, is that we really are reducing the overall numbers of people that have a substance use disorder, primarily because of what we're doing on the prevention side around um, alcohol use. Um, so the public does support prevention and treatment for substance misuse and related harms. <clears throat> Research pro provides understanding and evidence on the effectiveness of prevention, treatment, and recovery activities, which I'll get into more um, detail in a bit, and um, the expanded access to, to um, healthcare coverage and integration of um, of substance use disorders with the mainstream health services is, is uh, in the report considered a um, reason for optimism. So we've been saying this for many years, but now the Surgeon General has said it, prevention works, treatment is effective, and recovery is possible. So that was the introduction. The second chapter is, um, was written by Dr. Kub and Nora Vokov, um, head of the NIAAA and head of NIDA. And they did the neurological changes, which you all know quite well. But I thought they did a really nice job of putting it into plain English. And I like this particular slide where they compare, they did the, um, they compare the brain and the heart in two different conditions. So a brain with a substance use disorder and a heart with heart disease. And basically, um, you know, compared how, how a brain with a substance use disorder in the, in the MRI looks, you know, the functioning is, um, you can show how the functioning is, is, less, uh, is less active, the same way you can show that with a heart. Um, so I thought they did a really nice job of, of 
helping people to understand in this report sort of the neurology of this condition and how the brain is just an organ in the body and, and you can impact it the same way you can um, impact other organs in the body. Um, and they made the case for a chronic brain disorder. And so, uh, you know, if you, the nice thing about this report is I actually think you can use this chapter with patients to explain their brain because they really did do pretty, pretty I mean, they do have all this jargon, the, the different parts of the brain and stuff, but they really did do a good job explaining how um, <clears throat> continued substance use can um, make, the, make your um, disease get worse and that um, the changes happen in the various areas of your brain that affect feelings of pleasure, stress, and um, cognitive functioning. And so, and they use the, the hijack language, which we've been using for a long time, but I think, um, I think they just, it's explained in very lay language so people can understand it. And so what they say is addiction is a chronic brain disease. Um, we don't know, and this is one thing that I think is an interesting area of research, and maybe in a few years we'll have a better sense, that the changes persist long after substance use stops, and we don't know if they're permanent or if they can be reversed. Um, and there's still research looking at that. Um, and hopefully we will know, I don't know, maybe even in five years, we'll know, know more about whether it can be reversed. There's, there's research going on now. Um, Alchemies is actually doing some studies and others are doing studies around um, Vivitrol in, in people with opioid use disorder and, and trying to determine is there a length of time on an antagonist that, um, that can reverse those changes. And so far they know it, four months is not enough. <laughs> so they don't know how long or if any amount of time is enough, but they know that nothing that we've looked at so far and that the average length of time on the medication isn't enough. Also, we all know that adolescence is a critical at-risk period um, for, for brain development and for development of substance use disorders, and they talk about that. Um, so Rico Catalano was the... Um, editor of the prevention chapter, and I don't know how many of you know prevention research, but Rico's been doing the risk and protective factor research for, um, well, I remember going to a presentation that he was doing, I think I was still in my 20s, so that was a long time ago, 30 plus years ago. Um, so he's been doing that research for a very long time. <clears throat> and so what, why should we care about prevention, particularly as treatment professionals? Why, why do I even talk about this chapter? Um, well, we know, and we know that the misuse of alcohol and drugs is associated with numerous health problems and social, outcome, social problems, not just substance use disorders. So, hey Ray, you're late. Um, and prevention can help stop the progression from substance use to problematic use or substance use disorder, and we are seeing that at the population level with alcohol, as I had mentioned earlier. We haven't, um, we aren't seeing much change with other substances yet, um, but again, we haven't focused our prevention activity on other substances. We've primarily focused it on alcohol. And the range of um, economic um, um, cost-benefit for um, prevention is between, depending on the program, between $1.61 and $64 in um, societal cost for every dollar invested. And we know what works. Prevent, we know what in prevention works. 
So Rico's done all the work on risk and protective factors, um, and they, um, he's been doing it for over 30 years, and we know that there are reliable targets for prevention, and that they're consistent across diverse population groups, and that different communities and neighborhoods have different levels of risk and protection. So it's not just the individual risk factors or protective factors, which exist as well, but there are community-level differences that can be targeted. Um, so while there's a genetic component, um, to substance use disorders and maybe as much as half or more. Um, many of the other issues that are, um, you know, other health conditions or other social issues that are impacted by substance use um, can be prevented and um, we can also prevent early use and um, reduce the risk of developing substance use disorders. And the other thing that I think is kind of neat about this chapter is um, that they talk about it across the lifespan and that it's never too early or too late to um, do prevention programs. And, I, you know, given that we are starting to see, and I don't know if you're seeing, them, seeing this in your treatment programs, I'm kind of curious, we, we, we are starting to see um, an increase in late onset, um, particularly alcohol use disorder, but other substance use disorders as well, that, that older people may have either um, been using at a pretty high level all their lives um, and then it becomes problematic as they age because um, their bodies can't handle it anymore or even um, people upon retirement get bored and drink more or you know it's, it's oh is it three o'clock yet and um, it's not five o'clock anymore it's three um, and so we're starting to see more late onset and so thinking about prevention um, as something that you do across the lifespan, not just for children and adolescents, I think is something that was a, a major contribution of this report. And that there are many locations that you can offer prevention in um, within the community. And so just, if you, if you get the full report, one of the things, and this again was another one of the things we argued about a lot because there were pages and pages and pages of charts like this. Um, of prevention programs that uh, have been studied and have been proven effective. Um, and, and on the one hand, we wanted to demonstrate that there's lots that you can do, and on the other hand, there was, it was page after page after page. Um, but I think we landed in a reasonable place where most of that page after page after page is now in the appendix. Um, but so there just, I think the point though is that there are many effective programs across the lifespan um, that can be used, and it's something, if any of you are doing family treatment, it's something to think about um, for the family members of, of the folks that you're treating, um, thinking about what, what interventions might work, um, and to look at the prevention side of things to see. And the, a range of um, cost benefits, um, up to $64 per dollar invested. Um, so there are also public policies that can be um, that can be effective in addressing um, alcohol and drug use and the consequences of alcohol and drug use. And um, many of these are just uh, widely well-known policies to reduce available availability of alcohol. I think we're probably going to have to start thinking about this with marijuana as well, um, given how many states have now legalized marijuana for recreational use. Um, and what we know about alcohol is that um, making it, you know, having fewer outlets and um, fewer hours of availability does reduce use. <clears throat> Policies to reduce underage drinking, there are a lot of um, things that can be done 
um, policies around, and, and policy can be policy big like a law, or it can be policy um, small like, like a school policy or school program. Um, so what we know about underage drinking is, um, is that getting parents involved in um, one of the one of the things that we did in Maine years ago now that was incredibly effective is that we worked with the sheriffs. If you live in a rural area, kids tend to um, drink. They have pit parties, um, and if you can get the sheriffs to actually spend some time breaking up the pit parties, and then the policy for the sheriff's office being call the parents. Um, that's an incredibly effective strategy, incredibly effective policy is to get the parents to come pick up their kids. Um, policies to reduce drinking and driving, and again, we'll probably have to be thinking about that with marijuana as well and how we address um, um, driving while under the influence of marijuana. And um, policies to reduce prescription drug misuse, although we, we aren't, we don't have a lot of research on the prescription drug misuse yet. So we, there isn't really research that says that prescription drug monitoring programs are effective in reducing use. There isn't um, research yet on whether um, putting any, any of the, um, uh, the prescribing guidelines into statute is effective. Um, but those are kinds of things that people are doing and may be effective. So for prevention, there are over 60 prevention programs and policies that have been shown to um, prevent substance use um, in rigorous research, so randomized trials. Communities are an effective organizing force for bringing evidence-based policies and programs to scale and, and improving public health. I think on the first slide that I, that I went through really quickly, I, I, one of the statistics was there are about 5,000, um, in, in this country, about 5,000 um, community anti-drug organizations or coalitions. And so if you all aren't involved in those in the communities that you're working in, it would be a great thing for you to get connected to those. Um, again, just even thinking about the, the family members of the uh, patients that you're treating. Um, but there's not enough, as I said before, there's not enough evidence yet about prescribing practices and whether those actually reduce use. Um, so my predecessor, Wes Clark, was the editor, the senior editor of the treatment chapter. Um, and so I, I actually, since I'm the director of the Sub Center for Substance Abuse Treatment, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we're doing around um, this, this chapter and this work. Um, what we know is that, um, that access, to getting, access to care is still probably our biggest problem. And um, we know that once people get treatment and stay in it, which is another issue that we have is keeping people engaged in care. But we know that treatment can be effective, but the biggest issues are getting people connected to care that's effective and keeping them there. And we know that screening for particularly alcohol use um, and brief intervention are effective, and probably screening for drug use and getting people um, maybe using brief intervention to engage people in um, treatment or care may be effective. Uh, we know that the earlier we get people, the, the better the outcomes. Um, and we know that, um, that what we need to do is long-term management and not just short-term, um, you know, whether it's 28-day or 60-day or whatever it is, not just short-term treatment. It's a chronic disease, and we need to treat it over a long period of time. 
We do know still that most people that meet diagnostic criteria don't think they have a problem. So the majority of people, people don't think they have a substance use disorder until they are, um, if you use DSM-5, until they're at the, at the severe level. Um, and until they, and, and most families don't actually even start nagging them until they get close to that. Um, so people that are, um, so that's why it's incredibly important to engage primary care and screening um, because nobody tells people you might have a problem until it's so severe that they need specialty care. And if we could do more screening and brief intervention, particularly for, um, particularly for young people in, around alcohol, we might avert the need to have more people come to specialty care. And also, many people don't know what their options are for treatment. One of the things we've been talking about um, in the federal government, and it's kind of interesting, NIAAA, NIDA, and, and SAMHSA kind of all separately have come to the conclusion that we need to do something about helping people understand what to look for in care. And so we're all, no one's arrived any place yet on how to do that, but we all have come to this conclusion that we need to help people understand what good care looks like because people don't know. Um, and, and the other point about substance abuse treatment is that we really do need to treat it like we do with other chronic conditions. And so the goal is to stop or reduce the major symptoms, um, which in most cases is the harmful substance use and to improve health and social function, and to recognize and manage risk for relapse. And that there's a continuum of, um, you know, from prevention of use in general to managing um, use, and for many people, maybe managing use at a, um, at a, I don't know if healthy level is the right word, but at a level that's not harmful, um, or to treating a substance use disorder. But, so this isn't in the Surgeon General's report. This is kind of what we're thinking about um, at CSAT. How do, we, how do we address this? So we know that, um, that between actually, you know, the possibility of getting care and actually receiving good care that, that leads to good outcomes, there are many places to lose your way. So people might not have insurance coverage. Um, now, a lot more people have insurance coverage than they used to because of the expansion of Medicaid and because of the other um, things in ACA. But um, people have to get enrolled in that coverage. So even if it's available, people might not enroll. Even if they are enrolled, the services that they need or the providers that, that, that provide those services might not be um, in the network. Um, and people need to know what, what is appropriate for them or have someone guide them through that process. Um, so there are lots of opportunities, and by the way, this is true of healthcare in general. This isn't just for us. This is a paper from, from 2000 in JAMA about healthcare in general. There are lots of opportunities for, um, for our system to fail. So thinking about um, how, what can we do at CSAT to address those opportunities, we, I, this is the model that um, that I'm starting to use thinking about what can we do or how do we address this. So, um, we're, so we're thinking there's sort of, this is a simplified model, but I think I like simple. I, you know, before I came here, I worked in um, a department of industrial engineering for eight years. And um, the thing I love about engineers is 
So I also was a therapist at one point, and you know, as therapists, we sort of complicate things, right? It's like like um, everything's related to everything, and we and, and it's just like everything's complicated, and we see the world is um, very complicated, and people uh, it's very complicated, and, and engineers, it's like they just everything is down to the, this this essence, the simplest thing, and so I loved working with the engineers, and um, they taught me how to simplify. Um, so this, this sort of 90-90-90 model is something that we've used in other conditions, and the one that is probably most known in is, um, is with HIV, the international HIV effort. And the, and the goal um, of the international HIV um, treatment effort is, is to, by 2030, basically eradicate HIV. No new transmissions. I mean, people, you know, people that have it have it, but that there would be no new transmissions. And they've identified this 99-90 um, process as the way to get there. So for HIV, it's 90% of people who are infected get identified. 90% of um, the people that are identified get into treatment, which for them is ARVs, the medications. And 90% and 90 of the people who are um, on medication are in remission, um, have a viral load suppression so that they can't transmit the disease. And um, so a light bulb, when I was, you know, when I was hearing about that, a light bulb kind of went on my head. I said, this is really the sort of, this model would make sense at a population level for substance use disorders as well. If we could identify 90% of the people who, um, who meet diagnostic criteria, which we don't do a great job of right now, in, um, particularly in the healthcare system. People tend to get identified by the criminal justice system um, when they're quite severe. Um, and then, so if we could do that, if we could engage those people in care, um, so not just one session. You know, the most, um, this is true of the public system. I don't have good data on the, on the privately paid system, but, um, but I'm getting it. So, I'll, so the next time I talk to you, I'll have this data. Um, the, the, on the public system, the most common unit of service is one. So people come in for their full biopsychosocial evaluation, and then they never come back to treatment. So even if you get identified and get to care, we have a dismal record of engaging people in actually in, in services. Um, and then once, but if we engage people in services, we do pretty well. Um, probably very similar to what other chronic conditions are. Um, somewhere around 50% or so um, people get into remission. Um, so, so we need to do a better job identifying and get people, getting people engaged, and it seems like we need to have a good way of measuring that, and so I'm actually working on collecting this data now. Um, I got, I, I, last week I got my first um, tables on this analysis, and I will have a full analysis by September, um, actually calculating, so, so you see this says estimated, it really should say um, modeled because this is just, these aren't, aren't real numbers, these are just Kim's, Kim's, out of Kim's head from her experience in working in this field for all these years. But next year I'll have real numbers. <laughs> um, and so, and, we'll, and we'll, have, we'll know what our baseline is basically, and this will be what we're looking at. And we have ways of measuring identification. We have, um, actually, um, HEDIS is going to include a screening and um, brief intervention measure this year. Um, but I can also look at claims data, and, and since I know what the population levels are, I can look at claims data and see what percentage of um, 
people have a diagnosis in claims data. Engagement, we can look at units of service. We know that, um, that there's a standardized measure of four units of service, and I think it's in 30 or 60 days. I forget what it is. Um, the remission or the recovery, the last one, the outcome, is kind of a, it's the hardest one to think about. What, what is our measure? Because if we're talking about a chronic condition, it's not something as simple as viral load suppression, right? It's not a single thing. Um, and so there's a lot of argument right now. Um, you hear about the five-year remission or recovery measure. You hear about, um, you know, when I talk to payers, what they're interested in is reduced other costs, which they see as a um, measure of success. Um, most research, it's, research is funny because if you look at research outcomes, they usually are about um, reduction in use or um, abstinence, but they're all over the place in terms of how they define that. So, um, so I'm actually running this analysis with a bunch of different potential outcome, outcome um, measures, and we'll see where we land on that. More to come, um, but but it will probably be something that's a remission measure rather than a recovery measure. Something maybe that can be um, measured multiple times as opposed to just one time. Um, and I'll let you know next year. Um, this is a. Uh, Robin Williams at, at Columbia actually did the cascade of care for opioid use disorder. He, he modeled this. It's a model, um, modeled from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health um, survey that we do every year. And he came up with something pretty similar to what my simplified um, guesswork came up with, is that, um, and this is, for opioid use disorder, we actually do a better job diagnosing or identifying than we do for other um, other substance use disorders, but um, again, the big drop is engaging in care. So, the, so the blue is how is the current estimates what we actually have accomplished, um, and the light pink is where the treatment gap is. Um, and his estimates say that um, it's about three percent of people through the treatment vehicle get um, into recovery for um, opioid use disorder which is pretty dismal. Um, so coming from engineering and, or anyone that does quality improvements, I saw you gave a quality improvement award. Um, these are the three questions you always ask. What are we trying to accomplish? So those three things, identification, um, engagement, and reaching the outcomes, I think, are what we're trying to accomplish. How do we know that we accomplished it? Well, that's the measurement piece. Um, and what are some things we can do to accomplish it? Um, so screening and brief intervention. This is getting back to the report. These are things that we can do in the report. We know that screening um, is important. It's the way to identify. We know that brief intervention works for, um, for alcohol, and if we, um, and we could potentially use it for drugs, I think we need to be more targeted, and we probably need to not think that brief interventions are going to stop people from using. Um, they're probably more a, um, a resource for getting people engaged in other care. Um, and ongoing monitoring, having a trusting relationship, and it can be with a primary care provider. In terms of engaging people, um, we that also is an ongoing process. Um, we need to meet people where they're at. Um, I, I'm a strong proponent of outreach. If we're only, if we're only Getting, I mean, if we use the NISDA data, then we're only um, treating 10% of the people that 
um, meet diagnostic criteria that need treatment, then we need to, and most of them think they don't need treatment, then we need to do something other than just wait for them. Um, so we need to do more active outreach, um, particularly for people who are at risk, making sure they have access to naloxone and every time it gets given to them, using that as an opportunity to um, offer treatment. Syringe services, again, every time. Um, the, 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 the syringe services, um, people uh, interact. It's an opportunity to engage people with treatment. Um, withdrawal management is also another time to uh, engage people in treatment and doing outreach and education, um, not just to potential patients, but to family members. Um, and we know what works. We should be able to. I, we should be able to measure quality because we know what works. Um, and we just have to. We just have to do it to some extent. And you probably are all doing it yourselves in some way or another. And we probably just need to come up with something that we can all agree on. So, so people at the systems level um, know what to say about it. But individualized treatment plans, goals that are person-centered and strength-based. Um, keeping people engaged in care on an ongoing basis, so motivational interviewing. Um, care that considers the whole person, their body, their mind, and that's, that's culturally re relevant. So I like this. Uh, this actually isn't in the Surgeon General's report. This comes from, um, this slide is from Karen Drexler at the VA, and this is a, the VA's guidelines for treatment all on one page. And so I kind of, I like the simplicity of it. So on the um, see on the on the left hand side, it's all the things that they recommend their healthcare system does: screen and brief alcohol intervention, um, treatment, um, and then s promoting self-help, addressing other mental and um, physical health conditions, uh, continuing care guided by ongoing assessment. And the VA is actually starting to use the BAM. How many of you have heard of the BAM? Hardly anybody. It's the Brief Addiction Monitor. It was developed by some folks at TRI, and it's um, a tool that it's, I think it's still too long. It's like 17 or 20 questions, um, but it's used consistently when, when you're seeing the patient, and it measures um, really it measures risk and protective factors. So it measures things like sleep, engagement, and um, and self-help, um, family issues. And you can actually sort of track it and see um, are people are, is, are people improving or are they falling back? And you can potentially um, avert, you can use it to potentially avert relapse or identify when someone is sliding. Um, so that's the VA is actually going to use that across their whole system. Um, so that's what they recommend. And the VA used the highest level of. Um, Evidence for this, so they so that they're only recommending things that are have been shown in um, multiple randomized clinical trials. So for the treatment, the stuff in the pink, um, they have a list for alcohol, the, the medications, um, and the behavioral, the psychosocial interventions that have been um, demonstrated to be effective. For opioids, what's kind of interesting um, and seems kind of bold to me is that they, if you can see the the small print that for opioids, the psychosocial interventions are recommended to be used only with medication. So in the VA, they're saying for opioid use disorders, prescribe medication and do the psychosocial interventions, but don't do psychosocial interventions without medication because there isn't evidence enough that they work. Not true for alcohol, not true for other drugs, but for opioids. Um, so I think that that's, I, I, 
so I like to show this slide because I think that's an important thing, um, and um, that's how they're, that's how, what the VA is recommending now across the system. Um, one added thing that was in the treatment chapter is that um, technology can increase, this is all still potential, I think. I, the, the, the evidence is just starting to be there around technology-assisted care. Um, but it can increase access to care um, in previously underserved areas and settings. Um, it can enable service providers to care for more patients. It can provide an alternative option for individuals who don't want to do the in-person um, psychosocial interventions. <clears throat> and it inc can increase the chances that interventions are delivered as they were designed and as they were intended. So what that means is computers don't make mistakes. <laughs> They, they do, I mean, they make mistakes if they're programmed to make mistakes, but they do what they're told. So if they're given a, a, a manualized treatment, they deliver the manualized treatment. They don't veer off from it. And there's a potential for um, decreasing treatment costs. How many of you all use either mobile apps or, what, uh, or something in your treatment programs? I think, I, I think the private side may be um, more advanced on that than the, than the public side. Um, so chapter four, the treatment chapter, um, the conclusion is substance misuse and substance use disorders can be reliably and easily, easily identified through screening. Um, substance use disorders can be effectively treated, and the recurrence rates, if they are effectively treated, are similar to other chronic conditions. Um, and medications can be effective, but they are very underused, and treatment is cost-effective when you compare it with no treatment. Now, the recovery chapter by Keith was written or edited by Keith Humphreys. Um, and the sort of interesting thing is we don't have enough research about recovery. So the level of um, evidence for uh, the things that are in this chapter is, is much lower than the level of evidence for the things in the um, previous chapters. So there's an estimate of 25 million Americans are currently in remission. See, it says remission, not recovery. Um, there is an emerging social movement of recovery advocacy. Recovery-oriented services and systems are being developed and are starting to be researched, and there are many pathways to recovery. We know a lot of people actually um, get into recovery without ever um, being in treatment. One of the issues with recovery is there are lots of different definitions. Everyone has their own. Um, SAMHSA has its definition. We actually have developed a recovery measure that we're um, piloting with our, with our um, discretionary portfolio grantees, and it has it's an eight-item measure, which is too many questions, but um, we, always, we always ask too many questions. And we'll know within a couple of years whether it's measuring what it's supposed to. Um, but, but he differentiates in this chapter between recovery and remission remission as a medical term, that the symptoms are diminished or eliminated, um, and recovery, the many different ways that people um, perceive of improvement of their lives. There is good research on um, AA and mutual aid groups. Um, there's not good research on much of anything else, but it's being conducted now, and we have some hope around it. So these are the different kinds of recovery support services, um, self-help groups, recovery coaching, recovery housing, recovery management, 
um, you know, that's the checkups, the follow-up, recovery community centers and recovery-based education. Do you all use peer recovery coaches in your programs? Yeah. Um, I think that, 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 that that's, in, in recent years, I think that's been a great um, advance for our system. <clears throat> um, so, so you know what they are, individuals with lived experience, and they um, support uh, people through their recovery and, and provide um, potentially case management and other kinds of supports. So, as I said, there's good evidence for AA in particular, but 12-step programs in general. Um, there's some evidence on recovery housing. Um, Oxford House is one example that there is actually research around that. Um, telephonic recovery support, there's some studies around um, really recovery management checkup, just calling people. Um, but the, but what, that, what that really finds is that you can get people back into care faster if they've relapsed. But some things um, like peer recovery coaches has not yet been studied. Or if, the, if it's being studied, the studies are still underway. So the conclusion is celebrate and support recovery, but let it stand on its own. Make healthcare systems amenable to recovery concepts. Um, I actually did a presentation for the Medicaid directors um, last summer trying to explain to them that they were already paying for these services in other parts of healthcare, and it would not be that difficult to actually incorporate um, peer recovery services into their concept of community health workers. Um, investing in research on the effectiveness of recovery supports because it's inadequate at this point, um, conducting in particular on how healthcare systems can work best with recovery support services, how can we actually reimburse them and expanding research on innovation. So healthcare systems. Um, Connie Wisner has been doing this work for a long time as well, so we, we really did get the, the, um, the sort of the most famous um, researchers. So how do we organize our system? How do we pay for them? So she says there are constraints that scarce and restrictive funding for um, she's talking mostly about public SUD here, but I would argue that there's, there, has been there have been issues on the private side as well, um, so that there are, there, there's been inadequate funding, and so the systems are not well-developed as systems. Um, again, she's talking about public. Not everybody needs all of these services, but a system should have availability of um, treatment planning, withdrawal management, case management, and linkages. And this is true, I think, on the private side as well. Probably on the private side, less need for housing, but not completely no need. Um, peer support, medication, behavioral treatments, and other services. So the way we're thinking about, this isn't in the report, this is um, what we're trying to do about it. The way we're thinking about how do you build a public system is to look at what, what, is, what is the need and what is the availability? So this is some maps that we drew for the city of Baltimore to look at um, treatment deserts. And so we basically have data on where all the treatment programs are, and we, um, in this map we drew a one mile as a city, so we drew a one mile um, radius around that so they could see where they might um, have treatment deserts because people didn't, couldn't have access to it. Um, this is another map that is um, for the, um, it's really the greater Seattle area, and this is for uh, availability of uh, buprenorphine. 
The other thing that we are working with states, so we just gave the states uh, half a billion dollars on May 1st to address just opioid use disorders um, or opioid use um, prevention, treatment, and recovery supports, as well as um, making sure people have access to overdose prevention. And so one of the things we asked them was to, to look at maps and say where there, where there are treatment deserts, um, where there are needs, um, but also to target specific populations that they have identified as either particularly in need or populations for whom if you address the problem, um, it has a, a bigger impact. So, for, for example, pregnant women and newborns, if you, if you get pregnant women into treatment, there's an there's a impact not just for the woman in the, uh, and also for the newborn, but the cost is significantly reduced over time. Um, youth and young adults, because that is actually where the highest use is. Um, other underserved populations, people who are at risk because of uh, trauma, um, and people with co-occurring disorders are some of the populations. One of the populations that many of the states picked is people coming out of jail or prison, um, so people in that transition because they are at a much higher risk of overdose um, coming out of, you know, they've lost tolerance and now they're at risk of, um, once they get out and use, they're at risk of um, overdosing. So this is a map of Texas, since we're here. Um, we, we, uh, we have a map of every state on our website. You can search on the SAMHSA website to find these maps of every state. And basically what we've done, these are particularly for medication-assisted treatment. So what we've done is, and only for opioid use disorder. So we didn't, this doesn't have alcohol use disorder. We, we use National Survey on Drug Use and Health data to identify need for treatment in um, these particular, these census tracts. And then we overlaid on that um, availability of treatment from like those other two maps that I showed and um, came up with these. The red is the place where there's the greatest unmet need. Um, so this is Texas's map, but we have these for every state. So we asked the states to, to use those maps or their own data to do something like that so that they can better target um, rather than doing sort of the standard put everything out to bid and whoever gets the bid wins it. Um, so, we, so also, so that's so that's how we're trying to address this ac issue around access to care um, and creating a, a system that actually functions. Um, more and more, we're talking about integrating with primary care with the, with the healthcare system, and I, I don't want people to think that that means we, the royal we, whoever that is, that we who are working on building systems think that specialty care doesn't have a place. But it's just like with um, heart disease or with diabetes is a good example. So when you're when you have a, a severity that the primary care physician can't manage, the primary care physician refers to a specialist, um, and they know who those people are, and they and they and they have a relationship, and they refer to them, and then possibly the specialist sends them back to the primary care to be managed once they're stable, or possibly not. They and, and they may manage them over time themselves. But either way, there's a there's a back and forth between primary and um, specialty care, and that's what I think we're aiming at uh, for integration. I remember when we were only talking about integration with mental health, um, which we never actually fully accomplished. <laughs> so hopefully we will be able to better integrate with the healthcare delivery system uh, because there are so many 
particularly with people with severe substance use disorders who need the specialty care, there are so many other um, either physical or um, psychiatric issues that, they, that, are, that, that are comorbid. So some innovations that Connie talks about in this chapter are um, the different ways of um, different things Medicaid is doing about around reimbursement. Um, EHRs, I don't know. I, I still I'm not sure that's a very promising innovation. We have a long way to go with, with EHRs and um, how well they function um, in disease registries. So this is the breakout, at least as of um, the time the report was written. 66% of Americans have private insurance. Now this doesn't all add up to 100%. There's overlap. You know, there are many people who, for example, are duly eligible for Medicaid and Medicare. Um, and there are actually people with Medicaid that have private insurance as well. But um, so private insurance, 66% of Americans have private insurance. Medicaid is, um, covers 20% of Americans. Medicare, 17%. And um, at the time of the writing of this report, 12% were uninsured. And so that group of people were um, picked up by the public system. So one of the things that's interesting to me, and we're rerunning these analysis, um, in, in last year there were two papers published in the same edition of Health Affairs that was looking at ACA. And these both papers, using different methodology, came to the same conclusion that um, while, while more people were being treated for other mental illnesses, nothing had happened around substance use disorders. So, so the expansion of um, coverage did not necessarily expand access to care for substance use disorders. And we're rerunning this data through 2015. But some of the reasons that might be so is because, if you remember back a few slides, that, that um, the voltage drops. So the services people need might not be covered. Um, the, the, um, the, the providers might not be covered. There are many reasons that um, coverage may not lead to actually getting care. Um, so some things that this chapter proposes are around improving access to care are these different kinds of payment models, but we don't have a lot of um, data on what works, particularly for substance use disorder treatment in terms of um, increasing utilization. One of the things NIDA is actually talking about as we talk about how do we improve um, quality of care is this issue of report cards. Now, there are report cards on health plans now um, for various different ways. This one is looking at um, whether they cover um, medications for substance use disorders, for opioid use disorder. But um, there's no yet report card for treatment programs, but that is what NIDA is interested in doing. Um, and Tom McClellan actually has um, developed a a tool for doing that, and so there, so NIDA might go in that direction. So conclusions of this chapter, we need integrated care, health IT is expanding and maybe eventually it will um, improve communication and collaboration, um, and we need a larger and more diverse workforce. So quickly, to get to the vision for the future, um, the, the goal from the Surgeon General's report is a public health approach to treating substance use disorders. Um, or substance use, misuse, and use disorders. It provides a concrete evidence-based recommendations that have impl implications for policy and practice. The five overarching messages, both substance misuse and substance use disorders harm the health and well-being of individuals and communities, and addressing them requires 
effective strategies implemented across the, across the whole community. Um, there are highly effective community-based prevention programs and policies, and we should use them more. And fully integrating the continuum of services for substance use disorders with the rest of the healthcare system could improve the quality, effectiveness, and the safety of all healthcare, not just for substance use. Coordinating and implementing recent health reform and parity laws will ensure increased access to services, which it has not yet done. Um, and a large body of research has clarified the biological, psychological, and social underpinnings of substance misuse and disorders and described effective prevention, treatment, and recovery support services. But we still need more research. And so, finally, in summary, everyone has a role to play in addressing substance misuse and substance use disorders in changing the conversation around substance use to improve health, safety, and well-being of individuals and communities across the nation is necessary. So, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't miss this opportunity with the Surgeon General's report to have um, next steps. So expand evidence-based interventions. That's research what um, need more of what's worked. I was at a meeting yesterday um, uh, with Nora Volkoff, and um, she was, we were meeting with a psychiatrist, the APA, and, and she said, you know, they were talking about, well, we have effective medications and nobody uses them. And she said, well, we can't just stop with three medications, right? It's like, you wouldn't say that about any individual cancer, that, oh, well, we have, we have three medications we can't investigate anymore. Um, or the same with behavioral therapies. It's not like you would just say, oh, well, we have motivational interviewing. We don't have to do anything else. Um, so, so continued research is necessary. Doing a better job, I think this is something that we need to do, is doing a better job translating the science into public understanding so people know what to look for um, depending on their condition or depending on what's going on um, in their family or community. And doing a better job incorporating that science into the actual healthcare delivery system, both the um, medical care, primary care, and also into our system, specialty care. Um, so the report says uh, we need to mobilize different sectors of the community, um, those 5,000 community um, coalitions, we need to do more of that. We need to encourage parents to talk to their children um, and provide better guidance and tools for parents to talk to their children about alcohol and drugs and the risks they face, um, particularly for kids that are high risk, for the parents to start talking to them young about what, what their particular risks are. Um, and to monitor and evaluate progress. So where we want to get is a place where substance use is screened and monitored in primary care, where we address the full spectrum of problems, not just the people with, that are most severe, um, in the location that makes the most sense, um, depending on severity, um, where we use our, our technologies to improve care and improve communication, where we address all of the conditions that a person has and don't just leave out some conditions or have siloed care for different conditions, where medication is readily available, where we use performance and outcome measures to, to um, tell us whether we're doing a good job with care, and where we have peer recovery supports. So this, there's the website. We have all kinds of stuff that you can download from the website if you want to, you've had this presentation, now you can do it yourself, right? It's like, it's like the medical, right? You, you've, you've done one now, now you, now you get to teach one. Um, and I thank you, and I think I'm all set.
about 10 minutes if you have questions. Oh, Ray, I have to, you know, I have to let you ask a question since I, I gave you a hard time. So the question, there were some comments, I won't repeat that, but, but the question was, um, where's the money going to come from? Where's the investment if we're going to treat this as seriously as we do Ebola or Zika? Um, and what do I think about what's happening um, around essential benefits, et cetera? Um, you know, I think the, the, the hard thing is you start at what your baseline is, right? And so if we have a baseline of the block grant for a couple million, a couple billion dollars, then a billion dollars is a big investment. Right, and, and I think that that's one of the things, it's a perception thing that we kind of have to get over. Um, but how that will happen or not, um, you know, my job is to administer those funds when they get to me. <laughs> um, and I, I have no idea what's going to happen with health reform. I don't know that anybody does. Um, and again, I think it's your job to talk with, with folks uh, uh, that represent you. Um, to tell them what you want to have happen, um, because I don't think, I don't know that they're, that, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. Thanks. Can we have another question here? The first point you made about incarceration, is there any way to reconcile that point with the latest action that Jeff Sessions has taken? <laughs> I saw that come up and I thought, oh, <laughs> um, I think... So I, I work for the department. I, I work for Health and Human Services, and we do the we do the we do the Health and Human Services part. I I think the administration is working on its policy. The commission is you know that that is headed by Chris Christie will come out with some recommendations, and I think that's what the administration is waiting for to actually firm up their policy. I can't speak for other departments. I'm not going to try. Yes. No, I'm not under a gag order. I rep, but I represent the I represent the administration. Denise has a question. Thank you. Your presentation was outstanding. What I find interesting about this report is that for any other chronic illness and the continual monitoring, there are physiological indicators that we would look at and monitor with diagnostics as well. And once again, I see the absence of that um, in this presentation in this paper. And if we're going to get insurance to actually pay for things other than medication-assisted treatment, we need to point out those indications um, for chronic health measures. If you looked at COPD, we'd have oxygen saturation, compliance at work, et cetera. Um, and you would look at how often you're going to have a chest x-ray, how often are you going to have inspiration testing. Um, if we're going to look at is there improvement in the brain, 
we need to have approval for PET scans. We need to have those things built into this curriculum. And I certainly hope that you and Dr. Volkow would include that in the future so we have the ability to get insurance coverage for those things instead of just the medication monitoring. So do you have that? So I, it's funny that you bring that up because I had a conversation with an insurance executive a couple weeks ago and he said we need the measure. Like we, we need the A1C, right? And we can, I mean, we can't do fMRIs on people like once a month. I mean, that's not something that you could do. So, so the question is, what is the, I mean, is it, is it a urine drug test? I mean, what is the it? And that's the problem I think we, we so do you have a suggestion? Because if you have a suggestion, I will, um, I will take that under advisement. But you have to give her the mic back. <laughs> Thank you. So from an ASAM perspective, there are very clear indications about which medications um, you would give to clients, but those are based on blood tests and age. So depending on the assessment that you do that incorporates a nurse, a therapist, the physician, the psychologist, et cetera, you would then have triage protocols about when you're admitting somebody to treatment, what kinds of blood tests do they need to be having um, or any kind of diagnostic testing between 18 and 35. And all of that depends on what sexual activity they've had, all of those things. So in order to actually come up with the protocols for the clients you're measuring, depending on the N and what those diagnostics are at the outset, you would then actually define by triage and by protocol um, for this illness per the research, the same as you would for COPD or heart failure, et cetera. And that research is out there. Many of the treatment centers actually have those admission protocols for alcohol, opiates, benzos, whatever you have, okay? So I'd be happy to share those with you. Great, we had another question back here. Ma'am, yeah. Hi, thank you for being here today. So I work for a publicly funded and I'm really focused recently on um, Medicaid services. Do you feel like they're moving from an individual 15-minute unit of service to more wraparound case management, housing case management, that kind of thing? It's really difficult for the staff to document, provide services in tiny increments of care that we have to prove as opposed to just giving us a staff member that can do all kinds of wraparound services. Do you feel like they're moving that direction? I think it depends on where you are and where that system is in um, moving towards value-based payments, right? And so I think, and, and there's so much variety right now. So in places where it still very much is a fee-for-service unit cost um, kind of environment, that's what you get. Um, as you as you move in whichever type of value-based payments people are experimenting with, as you move more towards that, it becomes more valuable to provide whatever the patient needs to improve. Um, and so I think that's why people are so enamored of value-based payment models, is because um, they have the potential for actually um, improving outcomes. I mean the. Every payment model, though, has pros and cons, and you know the, the pro of um, fee-for-service is, is that you churn through more people, and, and we don't see enough people. So I don't know, I don't know where we'll land on that, but um, I, I think that in places where they're doing more value-based payments, they do have more comprehensive services for the highest-need patients. Thank you. Uh, one more question. Jack? Thank you, Marvin. Uh, great to hear you, Dr. Johnson. Thank you for the presentation. 
I was really listening with a particular lens around cultural, uh, what we would call spiritual, and uh, family and recovery sort of community-based elements. And, I, and there are certain spots in the report that shout it out. But, uh, but I, I also worry about uh, whether there really is a commitment at the public health and policy level for things like contemplative practice, uh, meditation, uh, uh, and, and, and more attention to the relational aspects, which we actually do know the 25 million who are in recovery place a huge emphasis, at least anecdotally, on spiritual practice and community as the key ingredients that propel them into long-term success. So, you, you know, it's interesting that I had a call with the Surgeon General's office last week, and their question, the reason they wanted to talk to me was, they said, are there evidence-based practices, are there evidence-based, faith-based practices? Yes. Well, so it depends on how narrowly or widely you define that. So the conversation we had was, was, was based on the RCT, based on the criteria like of the, the VA slide, the answer is not really. Although, if you, although there is evidence for, um, for um, a, like AA, which is a very spiritually based program, um, but that this is the issue: is that for many, maybe even most people in recovery, spirituality is part of uh, part of how they define recovery, right? And it's part of um, part of how they talk about how they got into recovery. And so sometimes you just don't know what to study. Right, or you don't study it the right way. RCTs have are designed to to identify cause and effect, and this might be something that an RCT is not very good at measuring. Um, so it was an interesting conversation because I think um, I mean they are interested. This came up, and this didn't come up just under this administration. This is something they've been talking about for a while and, and that they they actually felt, the Surgeon General's office felt, um, maybe the same that you did, is that when you talk to people, it's, it's incredibly important to them and yet the research is not very good or not very strong um, or missing around, um, the cause and effect research is missing around that. Um, so, uh, so I don't know that I'm really answering your question, but I think I think we are very conscious of how important it is, and um, and certainly Surgeon General's office is conscious of how important it is. Um, but it was it was something that I mean, the goal of this report was really to um, put this condition under the umbrella of healthcare. And so it was hard to frame in that way, I think, is what the issue was. But yes, it does come up over and over and over again and kind of is a thread throughout the report. And we know it is important recovery. Before we thank Kim and, and take our break, I wanted to take just one second and uh, tell you that these sessions, these general sessions are recorded and posted on the NAATP member section of the website, courtesy of Mr. Neil Scott. How about a wave over there, Neil? Um, Neil is with Recovery Coast to Coast. He comes to us every year and, and does this for us, um, also supported by Scott Munson and Sundown M Ranch. Thanks for doing that, Scott. 
And so some of our key folks like Doug Tiemann and Mark Mishik and uh, Phil Eaton and Dr. Johnson will uh, not only have their sessions up, but also interviews that, that make their way if we can squeeze them in. Uh, and so thank you very much. So uh, Dr. Johnson, thank you. This is wonderful. Um, we'll see you again, I hope, real soon. Oh my God. With your